Hey kids, have you asked yourself lately, what the hell am I doing? And have you asked yourself that maybe while staring at a blank screen that will become your college essay, which will situate itself inside a blank application to college, which you'd like to attend because maybe, well, you have no idea why? Uh, but the why behind this is so complicated, it's so personal, uh, it can be known, unknown, it's unstable, it's imposed on you, and the reasons have changed a lot as to why to go to college, mainly transitioning from almost exclusively being about personal development and betterment when we first started to go to college, and these days, it's almost entirely about improving your personal financial future. That's why people say they go to college. So, what kinds of things should you be thinking about, and how did it get so crazy? I hope I can help think this through with my first guest, Bill Derijewitz. Welcome to The Crush. Bill DeRijewitz wrote a book that has found its way into PTA meetings, parent nights, guidance counselor happy hours, college admissions offices all over the country, hell, maybe even the world. He even presented this book on The Colbert Report, and it's called In Full, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and The Way to a Meaningful Life. And I think it's one of the most important books that's out there about what's going on right now with high school and college education in this country particularly, as the title suggests, as pertains to elite education, that being an educational environment where the overwhelming majority of students are expected to attend a four-year college and where it matters a great deal what that college is. It's not that it matters functionally as much as it does socially, right? The hot brand-named schools are good, the ones people haven't heard about that much are not good, and therefore you will fall off a cliff into social obscurity if you even think the unthinkable thought that you'll have to go to a school that doesn't necessarily make eyebrows go up and jaws go down when you say that you're thinking about going there, right? So this book is a great read. He says so many things so much better than I could have ever said them, but there are things I've been trying to say to people for a long time in this job. Uh, so take this passage, for instance, I like this one. He says, why college? College is, after all, as those who like to denigrate it say, not the real world, but that's precisely its strength. College is an opportunity to stand outside the world for a few years between the orthodoxy of your family and the exigencies of career and contemplate things from a distance. Right? Nice passage. Right? So, so I think there's value enough in just doing that. Um, you know, but yeah, okay. Parents say, how can I quantify the value of that? How can I tell if that's worth my money? And if contemplating things from a distance is going to get my kid a job so that it'll be worth my money. Of course, that I believe isn't all that college is. It's a billion and one things, the exploration of which is the entire point of my podcast. But the fact remains that those things are really, really hard to quantify and hard to use in any career projection, never mind and let's call it a happiness projection, right? Because, I, I mean, happy first, job later. Jobs follow happiness, I think. That's why I'm here. I'm happy in this job. It's what I like to do as a college admissions counselor. And Bill, too, um, I believe, 
believes that, as he writes about in his book, and we talk about this stuff in the interview. And also, you know, if you read the book, pay careful attention, because you will notice that the swearing really picks up as the book progresses, which I quite enjoyed. Um, a lot of a lot of S-bombs, even a few F-bombs. You know what that stands for. So we as admissions counselors are the ones who are seeing Bill's excellent sheep at their most idealized, at the point in their lives that everything that they've done in their lives has led to. We see students who are really, really good at doing things well. Taking the tests, getting the grades, composing a bulletproof college resume consisting of equal parts athletics, club leadership, volunteer service, so on, so on, you know. So who are all of these excellent kids and what is it that they're excellent at? Is this real or is it something that has been made to appear real? What is real? Well, Bill gets at no less weighty topics in the book. And in the conversation, we wander all around the topics of politics, parenting, campus activism, and, hold on to your hats, civil infrastructure projects, huh? Huh? Are you on your feet yet? Uh, Well, here's my talk with author, former Yale professor, thinker, and current resident of my hometown, Portland, Oregon, Bill Derizowitz. Hello. Hi, is this Bill? This is Bill. Bill, this is Davin Sweeney. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Is uh, now still a good time? Yeah. All right. Great. Where in Portland are you? I live near Alberta. Oh, you're in Alberta. That's right. Okay. I grew up on 40th and Hawthorne. Um, oh, right, right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Portland is all the rage, man. When did you grow up here? Uh, I graduated high school in 1998. Um, uh-huh. so we moved into our house in 1987 and, uh-huh. uh, I went to, I took a, a year off after high school and then I went to, um, I went to college in, in 99. So, uh-huh. and then that was it. And then that was, that was the last time I lived in Portland. I live in New York city now. Oh yeah. Where do you live? I live in Harlem. I live right around the corner from Sylvia's restaurant. If okay. you're familiar, but yeah, I live, uh, right in the, right in the heart of it all. I guess Harlem is changing too. Yeah, well, if I'm here, I think it is. Yeah, um, I certainly people that uh, have lived here longer than I have have told me that that's the case. In fact, two blocks down, the uh, the Whole Foods is going in. So um, you're kidding me, really? There's gonna be a Whole Foods in Harlem? Yeah, right on Malcolm X Boulevard, right? Because nothing says Malcolm X like Whole Foods, right? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, right across the street from the, you know, the Fruit of Islam guys, you know, selling the uh the bean pies and everything. So, it's it's uh quite the uh quite the contrast. Well, so, well, I'm I really really appreciate you being flexible with me and and taking the time to talk. Why don't I dive into it? Sound all right? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> all right. So I, I reached out to you initially after having read your book, uh, which was assigned to our entire admissions office uh, at the University of Rochester, assigned, I say, and it's it was really transformative, I think, for a lot of us, and I've never underlined a book more in my life. Um, you know, it's sort of apropos of this conversation, you know, in college I saw a lot of kids underlining books, and I had no idea why. <laughs> 
mainly because you know I, I I didn't really know what was going on in college, and so I saw people doing stuff like that, and I was like, oh wow, maybe I should be underlining stuff too. But I didn't really know what the reason was. But I'm older and wiser now, and I know the the point. And you know, it's I've 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 kept it with me, you know, as I go to college fairs and other kinds of things and I pull it out and I kind of reference it from time to time, you know, because, uh, I feel like I'm scrambling at times to help families think about this stuff, you know, and really just sort of change the whole way they're thinking about going to college. And the stickiest one for me, you know, in, in, in some particularly like firmly middle-class communities, you know, is that college really shouldn't be thought of as a job training center I don't I don't think you know and th- and this is particularly how a lot of parents these days are thinking about it you know the ROI the return on investment and um what is as far as you're concerned these days and you've talked about it a lot the point of college and how have you seen it change um since your own experience with it well, to answer the second question first, I don't really think it has changed in my experience of it. Um, this, but, um, this is not something that started 10 years ago. You know, as I talk about in the book, this is um, this is the result. This, the state that we're in now is a result of trends that have been developing and strengthening probably for about 50 years and maybe in some cases longer than that. Uh, it has to do with the way college admissions changed in the 60s and you know it was it was part about it was partly about opening up access but with that came this new focus on scores and grades and an increasing uh, extracurricular arms race to the point where people feel parents feel kids feel that they need to just run just sprint continuously you know from 7th grade if not earlier in order to get into the dream college, which is supposedly going to give you a golden ticket for a life of wealth and happiness. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I went to college in the early 80s. The system wasn't as bad then, but it was obviously still the same system. Um, and I, I want to, listen, I want to emphasize that it's per- perfectly understandable for parents and kids to be concerned sure. about making a living, and um, the fact that college is more and more expensive, which has to do with a lot of things, including choices that we've made as taxpayers and voters to defund public higher education. Yeah, that was an that was an interesting point that you made it in your book when you talk about that. You say that if parents are worried about the cost of college, just look back at some of the decisions that they've made. Um, you know, as a as an element of that, that you know, in terms of voting, and I mean, you're in Oregon, and I'm. You know, I grew up under uh, an era of pretty consistent defunding of public education, you know, at least certainly in the secondary school level. But, you know, I think the quote here actually found it. This is why I underlined a book bill right here, because I found it. Okay, the exact thing I was looking for. If parents find themselves supporting kids beyond their college years, that is only in the aggregate of form of compensatory justice, uh, the intergenerational transfer of wealth that should have been affected through taxation. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, as a, actually in Oregon, the University of Oregon now gets 5%, 5% of its budget from the state of Oregon. Yeah. And and, and other schools that, I, that I've seen statistics on, like uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison or UVA or University of Michigan, sort of the big so-called public Ivies, 
it may be a little higher, maybe 12, 14%, but there's constant downward pressure on it. There's constant slashing of budgets. Um, and famously now in this era of, of the uh, of the, the Republican primary, we're talking about Scott Walker and, and the, he reducing the amount of funding to the University of of, uh, of Wisconsin, pretty much almost at the exact amount of public funding that he would give to fund a new stadium for the football team there. Right. Right. And, <laughs> so, uh, see, say yeah. no more, right? That's where we are. So right. let me back up then and ask you, so, so what's the point of college then? If the point, you know, because so many of these families are thinking about, it, like, this is the thing, this is the springboard to a good career, you know, and that's what... I, I'm still having a little trouble hearing you. Sorry about that. So, you know, that we've got families who are asking me, you know, that, you know, how are you going to help my son or daughter find a job? You know, and I say, well, your son or daughter will find the job for themselves, you know, and our job is to sort of help them do that. Um, but how do you, uh, you know, how, what is the point of college if not to help kids find a, a job and a career that's going to make them successful and happy and all the rest? Well, um, first of all, you know, that's the whole question, successful and happy, is if those things were the same. Look, I would say two things, uh, and I understand that it can be a harder argument to make when parents are spending a lot of money on college. Sure. But um, this idea that college is about um, getting a job and nothing else is a new idea. It's an idea that has arisen in the last few decades during the same period we were talking about. Uh, and it goes along with the general feeling that that's what life is about. Life is about making money, getting a job. Um, and therefore, since education is a preparation for life, that's all that education should be for. It's, it's a very, very narrow understanding of what it means to be human, of what a society is, of what our obligations towards each other are. And so you mentioned Scott Walker before, who continues to cut funding for this great university system that he inherited in Wisconsin. He also wanted to change the language of the of the charter of the University of Wisconsin to say that the purpose of undergraduation education is to serve the state's workforce needs. That was the language. And language about uh, citizenship and the search for truth was being stripped out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can, we can talk, and I want to talk about the, the higher purposes of an education and what it might mean to prepare someone for life. Right. But I really think that the first thing you need to say to parents, and, I, and, and this is why I say it in the book, I do talk about the practical side of it. What people have to understand, and it seems so hard to communicate this, but so essential to communicate this, is that actually, even, if, even to the extent that what you're concerned about is your children's practical future, you want them to get a good education in college, not a narrow vocational technical education, but a broad-based liberal arts education, because it's actually going to be better for them. And if, they are, uh, if their college is focused on getting the first job and preparing themselves for one first job, like being an engineer or being a nurse, then in a few years, when everything they've learned in college has now become obsolescent because of advances in knowledge, as it will be, they will be left holding the bag. They will be left unable to re-educate themselves and retrain themselves for their second, third, fourth, and fifth jobs. Right. This is what the economy has become. Everybody understands this. 
This is the future of work. It's a fluid situation. New industries are, are being created. Nobody can predict, and, and old industries are being destroyed. Nobody can predict what the high-paying jobs of 20 years from now are. Uh, a significant portion, something like a third of the high-paying jobs of today, are in industries that did not exist 20 years ago. Right. Yeah, that's a pretty common refrain. I think you know it's something that we talk to students about a lot, especially you know students who are interested in looking at you know technological areas of study at the place I represent at the University of Rochester. But how, you know, I mean, how come that doesn't seem to sort of filter down or filter you know to the parents who are looking at who are looking ahead at. Uh, uh, you know their their own child's future. The need for a much more dynamic set of skills. Well, it doesn't filter down because there's an enormous uh, tidal wave of propaganda or just misinformation that's constantly coming at them from journalists, from politicians. It comes out of the mouth of our president mm-hmm. that says you've got to study STEM. It's all about return on investment. It's all about the first job. So people don't know some basic facts, like the fact that most uh, employers in surveys, the overwhelming majority of employers in surveys, say that that what you major in in college is less important than how well you do in college, and also other factors that has revealed in job interview and experience and so forth. Uh, They don't know, a lot of people know at least vaguely, that people who major in things like engineering have higher starting salaries than liberal arts majors. What they don't know is that that income gap almost entirely closes within 10 years, precisely because the, the payoffs, even the practical payoffs of a liberal arts education, tend to happen farther down the line after that first job. Um, again, as you said, first of all, as you rise higher in an organization, and softer skills become more important, leadership skills, management skills, interpersonal skills, the ability to think creatively, the ability, you know, we, we constantly talk now about creativity and innovation and how everybody knows that these are the, the most valued skills in the workforce and the most important skills going forward. And yet, people seem to want to train their kids to fill out answer sheets. Right. To become someone who can, you know, solve equations that are put in front of them instead of thinking in a lateral way and coming up with a new app or coming up with a new business plan or whatever it's going to be. Right. So to the extent that this extends even into, I say even into, although, you know, the point of your book is that, you know, this is almost the entire point of some of these institutions, but to the extent that the, you know, filling out answer sheets and thinking along those lines extends, as I said, even into places like Yale where you taught, uh, you know, does does this, does the environment of an elite institution like that, quote unquote elite, you know, change people from being more sort of original and independent thinkers, or does it sort of help them along a trajectory that has begun for them earlier on in high school or, as you mentioned before, even in seventh grade? Yeah, I mean, our kids are not getting to college as as creative thinkers. I mean, if they were, I don't think there'd be a problem. As As I try to say over and over in the book, Whatever the problems, whatever problems there are with the colleges and universities, and I think there are very significant problems, the main problem is what happens to kids before they get there. Mm-hmm. 
it, it happens to them because everything in childhood is leading up to the college admissions process. So in that sense, it is the college's fault. But it's not about what happens in college. It's about what happens before you get there. It's about the person you have to become in order to get into a place like Yale. And, and it's not just the top ten colleges and universities. I've heard from people really throughout the education spectrum, and not just higher education. I've heard from people at community colleges, at state schools, and from in high schools. It's the same damn thing everywhere. It's the same ridiculous mentality, yeah. which is not only, you know, sort of deeply inimical to any kind of real understanding of what it means to be a person, what it means to be a citizen, but it's even self-defeating in practical terms. And the fact is that you look at the competitors, the East Asian countries that we're trying to emulate because we feel threatened by them. And what are they doing? They're trying to emulate us mm-hmm. because they looked at what they've done and they said, okay, over the last generation or two, we've built middle-class societies, but we're not America. Right. Why is all the innovation still coming from America? And they started to figure out that it's because we don't teach in this kind of rote, narrow way that they do. And in college, we have liberal arts colleges. And in K-12, through we encourage students, or we, we used to encourage students, to think for themselves, ask questions, work independently sometimes. All the things that we're doing less and less of because we think that our kids need to be like the ones in Korea and Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's you really know, stupid. It's yeah. really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think about you know, and I think about that. We we get a lot of students that come. You know, obviously we're we're spending our time talking to you know a, 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 something like a fifth of you know the students that apply are are coming from other countries in the United States, and you know they have they're they're leaving uh, arguably if they come to college in the United States, they're leaving systems that are completely different from the one that they're looking to come to, and that the stakes are way higher than than the ones that are whipped up you know uh, that the that the families in the United States are all whipped up around you know it's like you got to get this score on a test or that's it you know you're not in uh we have this concept of you know of uh holistic admissions right where we're we're allowed as uh mainly private universities are are looking at you know all of these different factors that you know come and come to bear on on why we may or may not think a student would be a productive or or successful member of our university community and you know, I, I wonder because I'm coming at this from the perspective of the college admissions counselor. You know, do you think that that's a that that's a useful way to look at um, to to consider this? Like, let me ask you to to just sort of think about the entire profession and the nature of of of, of building a class of students to come to college. You know, is is are, do you think we're doing it the right way? Uh. Yeah, listen, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with holistic admissions per se, and I don't think that, you know, if we say admitted on the basis of a single test, like the SAT, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be better, and it might be a lot worse. And I think that just as we need to understand that education addresses the whole person, it makes sense to look at the whole person. The problem is that the specific criteria we, we use are, um, you know, they were designed with the best of intentions, but again, over the last generation or so, uh, 
when the college admissions frenzy, since the college admissions frenzy has really gotten going, which was really probably in the 80s, uh, U.S. News started to publish its rankings in 83, right. and that's probably a good benchmark for when things really went crazy. Right. Um, this has all just become a game, and everybody knows that it's a game. Certainly the students know. And it's, about, it's not about embodying the qualities that are really called for by the various admissions criteria like sports and art and you know leadership and so forth. It's about it's about make uh, making them appear on paper. Mm-hmm. So you know people who work in high schools and I've talked to a lot of them at this point, especially the kind of high schools that feed into the best colleges. You know, I mean half you know a lot of the stuff that shows up on kids' resumes they're not really doing. It's just you know. They sign up for a club. They barely go. It's just another thing to put on their resume. Um, And I would say in general, because students are doing so much, both in and out of class, that they're not really doing any of it or very, very little of it in uh, in a really concerted, meaningful, purposeful way. And I would include academics. You know, these kids who come out of high schools with perfect records, they don't necessarily know how to think very well. Well, I've gone, really I've, I've, I've told people on occasion that it's perfect just is boring after a while. But it's not just that perfect is boring. Perfect is not perfect, okay? <laughs> right. There's so much great inflation, not just in colleges, but in high schools. Especially, I mean, I mean, parents are paying a lot of money whether it's a private high school that just costs a lot of money or a very good public high school, which means you live in a place where it costs a lot of money to live, they are basically high schools are treating students and parents as customers and clients who are paying for good grades, and it's almost impossible. Again, I've spoken to a lot of high school teachers. I'm sure you have too. It's impossible to grade honestly and to teach honestly. And... Kid, a kid gets straight A's, it doesn't necessarily, it means that they're good at being a student. It means that they're good at giving the teacher the answer they, the teacher is asking for. It is not the same thing as knowing how to think. So how, would, how, how in our line of work would you, where would you dig to find the answer to that question? You know, I don't know. Um, and again, I mean, it's you know the problem is bigger than just you know you guys are trying to look for the for for students who can think. Yeah. If you have a system that's not producing them, it's going to be hard to do that. Right. Um, I'm not someone who is very good at thinking through the ins and outs of specific you know kind of nuts and bolts policies. One thing that I will mention, just because I happened to heard hear of it and I thought it was a great idea, um, you know, there's a new kind of alternative type college called Minerva, which okay. recently started. And um, it's not alternative in like a Montessori sense. It's trying to be actually very academically rigorous, more so than the Ivy League. Okay. And part of their admissions process is a real-time essay. Kids sit down the computer screen whenever he wants to, he or she wants to, gets a prompt from the school, and has to write an essay on the spot. Mm-hmm. I would like to see that uh, as a universal policy because Why? that's a really good start to test something. You think that feels a little more realistic to something that somebody might actually encounter in in in, in, their, in, in their in their life as opposed to, you know, hey, sit down and, and take a test for four hours and show me what you think. 
It's not about whether it's a realistic scenario for future life. It's about it is something that's going to tell you whether this kid can really think and really write, which a college essay that's submitted on an application isn't going to tell you at all because you don't even know if the kid wrote it. Right. Well, that's a, you know, I mean, and that, that's a hard, <laughs> that's an incredibly difficult thing for us to that I, you know, in, in, in a lot of contexts, we're understanding that students are somewhere along this sort of honesty spectrum because it's become, there's, be, you know, it's become a, you know, the, the phenomenon to such an extent that students feel as if, right, they can't be totally brutally honest about who they are in that. And then furthermore, that they need to actually sort of target their message to individual schools because there are different schools that say that they want different kinds of people. And so they can't mm -hmm. be the same uh, authentic human being to all 10 or 12 or 20 schools, uh, God forbid, mm -hmm. that they're actually applying to. And so, you know, I wonder you know, how, I mean, is it even, is it even fair for us in, as admissions counselors, as we often do when kids say, what's the secret? What's the trick, you know, to say there isn't one, just be yourself, you know, to just be you. I mean, is it even fair for us to tell kids stuff like that? Listen, here's what I would say. Um, I think it is fair for you to say that. I think that that's your role. I think your role is to try to say we're a particular school. We want kids who are going to thrive here. That isn't necessarily everybody. You shouldn't pretend to be someone you're not because it's not going to be good for you or for us. Um, that that more cynical message, like be 12 different people to 12 different schools, they're going to get from their college, you know, tutor or whatever these people are called. I know not all families hire them, but you know the people that get thousands of dollars to package your kid for college admissions or you know maybe less expensively the college counselors in the kids high school um although hopefully i, I think a lot of them actually are very well-meaning and, and try to give kids the right message too um it i, I don't think it's going to make a kid happy right to go to a school that really doesn't suit them well, so let me ask you this I mean, along those lines what is it about these these places these you know these top these top ranked whatever US news and I, I share and I think a lot of us the overwhelming majority of the people in the you know on on, on my side of the equation share the uh, disdain that you have for these rankings but uh, there they are and those you know they point like a big arrow for, for families to success you know what is it about these kinds of places that sort of captures the uh, uh, the global imagination status that's what captures their imagination I mean you answered your own question people want to go to the number one school because it's the number one school if a different school were the number one school that's where they would want to go mm -hmm. and most students go to the top ranked school that lets them in which isn't necessarily a very good idea but this, this is why the U.S. news rankings were such a watershed in the, in the world of college admissions, because all of a sudden, I mean, there had always been a rough status hierarchy, but all of a sudden there was one number and every school was on the list, somewhere on the list. But, you know, and, and so much of college admissions for parents and for students is about status, is about prestige, is about bragging rights and... The feeling of being superior to other people. I mean, it's not that complicated. We, well, I've heard it said that at the uh, uh, where a you know child goes to college is the last line on the parent's resume. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's also, I think, something that many 
students, many young people, um, it's the main way they define themselves and their worth in life um, for a long time. Well, and one of the for other things that's that's tough about this for me is that, you know, there are, as we often, you know, obviously I represent a school that's on the on that, you know, pretty high up on that on that list. When you consider there are something like 4000 schools out there that kids can right. choose from, you know, right. but, how, you know, how do you is there a less neurotic way to go about this as far as you're concerned, you know, other than, you know, because everybody wants to take shortcuts. That's the thing. You got 4000 places. How the hell do you narrow it down? You know, and um, the rankings is one thing, but there's a hundred different lists out there. There's that's the part of it. I think that there's just this this paradox of choice that you've got so many choices that that's good for you but it in fact i think creates more anxiety than it than it uh than it resolves well i think that's true i'm not sure that there's anything you can do about that i mean you know that there have been studies by psychologists that that show that whenever you have uh, whatever it is you're choosing whether it's you know diapers or colleges if you have too many choices you start to feel paralyzed uh and also the flow of information about colleges is so it's so poor i mean these are really complex you know, you're not you're not buying a diaper. It's it's a much more complex thing that you're that you're buying, uh, and it plays out over a much longer period of time. So I think in mm-hmm. practice, people find various ways to narrow it down. You know, you know someone who went to a certain school, or there's a regional bias, or there are different institutional types that you may be interested in, or you're interested in particular programs or particular strengths that a college has. Uh, to a certain extent, I mean. You know, you just got to swim in the sea, and I understand that it's a. It feels like an overwhelming task, but by the same token, there are lots of really good schools. Another thing that people don't know is that for uh, certainly for a typical middle class white kid, which who goes to college, which is most kids who go to college, um, it doesn't matter where you go mm-hmm. in terms of your future earnings. Your future earnings are independent of where you went to college, because what matters is who you are. Mm-hmm. So, of course, parents don't know that. They think if a kid gets to Harvard, they'll be set for life. Mm-hmm. Um, that may be true. If if you get into Harvard, you'll be set for life, but you don't have to go. <laughs> you could go anywhere. Um, that's that's the thing. And also, if we're talking about, again, to talk about what an education really means, which is to become a thinking person, um a freer person, a more flexibly minded person, a more self-aware person, then there isn't necessarily a very good correlation between institutional prestige and educational quality. And I think some of the fanciest schools, uh, are, I would never tell a kid to go to some of those schools. Well, if you, you know, I mean, and this is the part of it that, that kind of breaks my heart at times. And it's one of my favorite kids that I met out on the road this year who was from, uh, you know, pretty working class environment as far as I could tell from in Long Island, you know, and uh, and he was an outstanding student in the International Baccalaureate program. He wanted to study romance languages. And, you know, I th- I'm like, we got this kid, you know, um, and this happens to us all the time. We fall in love with these kids and we want them to come to our place because we like our place and then uh because they're so outstanding you know they get into other places that are higher up on that on that ranking and so he's going to go to harvard right and and i i worry a little bit about that really cool curiosity that he has getting beaten out of him in a place like that and um and i you know i've like i want to follow him a little bit you know i've stayed in touch and i want to sort of follow and see where he goes and see how it see if that in fact happens or if he sticks with the plan but um 
you know, that, 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 that becomes a really difficult thing to tell students. It's like, look, you're from, you're from nothing, right? Especially some of these kids who really are, right? They got nothing in their background. They're maybe the first in their family to go to college. They get into the one, right? The big H. How can, you know, how the hell can you tell them to not go, right? I mean, what do you do to, to say, this isn't, trust me, this isn't right for you. I mean, there's nothing you can really do at that point, right? Yeah, and I'm not even sure I would tell them not to go. I sure. mean, if you're from a, a low a, a, a low income background, um, then it does matter where you go That's in a very terms different of future earnings. Environment, right? And it's probably cheaper for him to go to Harvard than just about anywhere else because they're They'll giving him full it. tuition. Right. But again, it's not about what you do if you get into Harvard. Okay, ninety five percent of the people who apply to Harvard don't get into Harvard. Mm-hmm. And the issue is. What have you already had to do just because you're the kind of person who has pointed towards Harvard application for the last 15 years of your life? <laughs> right. That's who have you so become? Strange. Yeah. And also, you know, what's it going to do to your psyche that you've been told your whole life that you're going to go to Harvard and then you don't get in? Right. I mean, it takes a really massive degree of courage on the part of those students to decide to change course. And I, I think it's unrealistic, you know, um, at this stage of the game that it, it's finally probably after they get on to their own uh, sort of life trajectory and out of their parents' house that they, that, that, that might set in for a lot of students like that. Well, what, what are you signing your kids up for when they're 5 or 10 and you start to shove them through this thing? Mm-hmm. Especially knowing that 95% of them are not going to get in anyway. So what are you doing to your kid? And to the kid who is going to Harvard, I, I think you're right. I mean, I hope he still ends up studying romance languages. There's such an enormous pressure at places like that, not just Harvard, places like that, to maximize your income when you come out. Mm-hmm. So chances are strong that he's going to get herded towards Wall Street or consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, You know, I think there's less and less uh, real intellectual passion at those places. I think that in many ways have become deeply cynical. Um, both the student culture and the institutional culture has become deeply cynical. This is one of the things that a lot of people are talking about. There are movements to you know, not go to college, to not pay your student loans, to uh, basically just uh, to use a, a very popular term uh you know in the tech community to disrupt you know this whole concept i mean is this to what extent do you look at college as it exists right now as a as a bubble that's going to pop one day yeah i don't buy that argument i know people like to say that and i know it's very fashionable to kind of hate on college or disdain college or to talk about a bubble i think if it were a bubble it would have burst already the whole problem is that it's not a bubble because while people are spending a lot of money and taking out a lot of loans. Um, They're doing it for very good reasons. They're doing it because if you don't go to college, you have a very um, very grim economic future in in this country, in this world. Um, Despite the cost of college, there have been studies that show that actually college is the best investment you can make, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Basically, you're going to be doubling your lifetime earnings. Right. There's this, you know, there's this myth of the sort of heroic tech entrepreneur like Zuckerberg or Bill Gates who drops out of college, and there may be a few people like that. But um, or the professional athlete. 
professional athlete. Yeah, whatever. I mean, you're not going to be a professional athlete either, right? Yeah, I mean, these so, things are statistical impossibilities that make it completely impossible to try to plan your life around this. Well, that's exactly right. So, so I think it's all. I'm sorry. Uh, I think that's exactly right. I think it's all a lot of. It's really just a lot of talk and a lot of propaganda. Uh, some of it with a very strong, with a very specific political purpose, like Peter Thiel, the guy who's, you know, paying 20 kids a year, $100,000 to drop out of college. He's a right wing liber, he's a right wing libertarian whose whose aim is to destroy public higher education. So it's this kind of anti-college propaganda, but it does an enormous disservice to the hundreds of thousands of kids who start college every year. And if anything, we need more kids to start college. A lot of kids don't have, for financial reasons, don't have access. Um, we need to make public investments in public universities like we used to. That's what we need to do, not to say, oh, kids don't have to go to college anymore. Okay, right. I mean, and, and along those lines, I mean, what are, do you think that the, there are other things that the government could or should do to, uh, to look at this problem of college admissions mania and, 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 and all the rest of it that we've been talking about? Are there, are there government policies? I know that you said earlier that you're not necessarily a policy guy, but are there things out there that you, that you endorse that you think might actually go a little ways to kind of reducing some of the, some of the chaos around this? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is the one that I've already touched on, and it's what Bernie Sanders is talking about, free public high-quality higher education. If we had great public universities in every state, and we used to have great public universities in some states, like California, then we wouldn't have a situation where everyone is trying to get into through the keyhole of 10 or 12 highly selective private universities. That would, that would I think, that would be the most significant thing we could do to take the, um, take the temperature down in the college admissions frenzy. But it's going to take an investment of tax dollars. We actually need to pay for it. Uh, people, people have done this weird compartmentalization where they seem to think that, you know, they think with one part of their brain as parents who don't want to, you know, who are upset about these huge tuition bills, and another part of their brain as taxpayers who don't want to pay for public higher education. And that passage you read from my book about the intergenerational transfer of resources, that's what I'm talking about. Right. Well, yeah. what, do you, what do you make of that? I mean, how, did, is, this, is this just, is this a, uh, is this something that you think, I don't know, this might be a question that, that with, with no possible answer, but I just, I, I wonder at times, you know, because I hear, you know, my mom went to Berkeley in 1968, and you know, and there was a whole thing going on there. And our generation is just not as good as that generation, you know, because we're not doing the things that they were doing. And uh, I, I, I feel like there's, you know, I struggle a little bit to uh, reconcile the 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 reality and the fantasy of social decline right and that, that things are never you know there's a just some sort of generational imperative to talk about the fact that things aren't as good as they used to be and uh obviously when it comes to some things it really isn't it's really really a lot worse and it's getting even even more bad um but where um you know where where's your hope? I mean, where where's your hope for this whole thing? How does it how to, you know give give me the happy ending to this story, Bill? Well, first of all, who says there is a happy ending? <laughs> I mean, there is an. Oh I'm come not, on, I'm man! I was really open for a happy ending. We want we want happy endings. I mean, there isn't necessarily going to be a happy ending. Um, but let me back up for a second. Um, 
I'm certainly not saying that this generation of college students is worse than some other generation of college students. I'm not even talking about when I talk about when I talk about the funding of public higher ed, I'm not talking about students. I'm talking about adults. Okay, so the problem is that the people who went to college at Berkeley in the 60s grew up to be adults who aren't paying for college at Berkeley in the 80s and 90s and in the 2010s. That's the problem. It's the adults that are the problem because in the decades after the war, when that generation was were, were growing up, the adults said, you know, we're all in this together and we need great public higher education to make the country strong. So why is that not happening? Because over the last 40 or 50 years, coincident with the college admissions thing, and maybe you know there are larger factors that are common to both, we have disinvested from public needs in general. Okay, It's not just public higher education. Look at what's happening with our infrastructure. Um, I mean, you live in New York. You know, there's, everybody recognizes that we desperately need to build Two, two new tunnels underneath the Hudson River for train traffic. Like this is an imperative, and at some point in the next few years, one of these, one of the two existing tunnels is going to collapse, and it's going to paralyze a significant portion of the nation's economy. But nobody wants to step up, right? First, Christie didn't want to pay for it. Now Cuomo doesn't want to pay for it, or they don't want to pay their share. I heard something on the radio today about New Orleans and what it's going to take coastal protection. To you know, to prevent the destruction of this vital American city. It's not just a great city, but it's a vital city. It's at, it's at the mouth of the Mississippi. We need to have a city there. Nobody is willing to do this. Okay, it's the same thing. It's the same problem. We undertax ourselves and 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 underinvest in public needs. So, if you want a happy ending, the happy ending would be that we reverse that. There are signs. Specifically, when it comes to college costs, that there's now so much resistance to the, to the situation that's arisen that people, even Republican candidates, and that's when you know something's really serious, even Republicans are now talking in whatever inadequate way they may be, but they are at least recognizing the fact that they need to address this issue, that we can't continue the same way we've been going. So hopefully... We will come up with some, you know, we will actually do the right thing and refund higher education. Uh, at least there's movement in that direction now. And, and with things like infrastructure, it doesn't even seem there is yet. So that's, as, I think, as hopeful as we can be right now. Okay. So let's say that there's a student that's listening to this right now and saying, you know what, that seems like, yeah, that's, that's a, you know, a, as big a problem as I can wrap my head around and I'm actually into it. You know, I want to work on it. I want to do something about that. Well, you know, you, let's say then that you're a, you're an advisor, you're that student's freshman advisor and, and they're at a liberal arts, you know, college or research university. You know, how do you advise that student to sort of build their, their college experience to begin to even th attack that problem? I would never do that. I would never suggest that somebody build their college experience to prepare themselves to address one problem in the world. I, I didn't. I wasn't just giving you a glib or or irascible answer. Yeah. Here's the point. Okay. Here's the point. All right. Don't go to college with the idea that you're going to college to help you do one thing when you get out. Whether that thing is solving the problem of student loan debt or becoming an engineer or whatever, the whole point of a good education is that it prepares you in a general, holistic way for life going forward. You want to become a powerful thinker, a flexible thinker, a creative thinker. You want to become a self-aware person. You want to learn to 
um, question, recognize and question your own assumptions and interact with people who have different assumptions, all those things, right? You basically become an adult intellectually and emotionally, or you begin to become an adult. And then once you've done that and you go out into the world and you start to have an idea of what is going on in the world, because you don't really when you're in college, then you can direct those aptitudes towards whatever purpose seems most urgent to you. And if it's, if it's about college affordability, great. But, you know, for example, uh, lots of students start nonprofits when they're in college. I know, for instance, at Stanford, it's one of the big things, something like 10% of Stanford students start a nonprofit before they graduate. I think this is ridiculous. I know people who've started successful nonprofits. They're never 20 years old. Okay, they're more like 30 or 40 years old because they actually know what's going on in the sector that they want to attack, like food or education or whatever. So your job as a college student is to prepare yourself in a general way. But, but let me also say that there is, I, I definitely think there actually are things that students can do while they're in college to address the issue of student loan debt. Um, you don't have to make a career out of it. I mean, one of the reasons that uh, there's, I would say the reason that there's traction on this issue is because students have been p gotten pissed off enough about it that they've banded together and organized and start and held demonstrations and started, you know, shouting about it. And you know, you don't need to design a major to do that. It's something that you can do while you're in college, um, just as you, you know, as an as 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 activism sort of on the side. And and I encourage people to do it when they're in college. Because that's when people are really going to pay attention to them on this issue. You know, if you have lots of students, you know, very vocally protesting policies of the government and of their own institutions, like, you know, again, you're in New York, so you've seen it happen at Cooper Union yeah, and, and at the at New School Columbia. and NYU. At Columbia, what are they? What are they protesting? Columbia's—they've been dealing with a, a, you know, some pretty. Um, substantial issues of, uh, you know, sexual violence and date rape and things like that. So there was a, there was the right. instance of the young woman who was, you know, but this is a, right, 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 another right, broad right. social issue that, that, that uh, right. gathered right. a lot of yeah, uh, momentum. Yeah, and, and, you know, you, it doesn't matter what you're majoring in when you do that. Sure. You know, it's, yeah. So that's what I would say. Okay. And I, and I think it's really, I mean, I do hope students and families also, I would like to see families really step up and start to have a voice, parents start to have a voice, which they're sort of starting to do too, maybe not directly about uh, issues of debt, but certainly issues of, like, what is the system doing about kids? Because so many parents, you know, I mean, I mean a lot of kids are really in, in deep psychological trouble now, and parents see it, and, and they're pushing back against, like, the homework epidemic and the testing regimes and things like that. So you see parents getting more involved in a in a constructive fashion than than uh you know to put the missiles on their helicopter and go into attack mode. Well, probably most of them are still doing the the latter, but there 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 are parent groups around the country that I've heard of and probably many more that I haven't heard of that are um yeah, because they're concerned because like I said they see that it's really it's really screwing their kids up, you know? Uh, I mean, that's the real, it's the tragedy of it, and it's also in some sense the kind of tragic justice of it that, you know, this doesn't come for free. I mean, you could you could try to get your kid at the head of the line by 
standing over the with a whip for 15 years, making sure that they're the best, so that they're you know that they do better in life than all the other kids. But actually, that comes back to haunt you, because you end up with kids who who are very unhappy, who are who have a sense a deep sense of emptiness, who have an enormous sense of stress, and who often get to college not really knowing how to function as adults. Um, it's a big problem. Yeah, and I and I understand. I mean, one of the things you talk about in the book is you know that that sounds right there like that's coming from that personal place that you mentioned in the book about trying to figure out how best to sort of live your own life in reference to your father and other things like that. I mean, is that does that sound so? This sounds familiar to you. It does, but I, yes, it does. But I have to say, I mean, the the struggle that I went through to kind of define myself against my father's expectations was nothing compared to what so many kids are going through now. And there's actually a, a great book that just came out called How to Raise an Adult. It's for parents. It's by a former freshman dean at Stanford. Um, this is what she talks about. I mean, I, I, kids are in much worse shape than I was. I mean, kids who really just do not have coping skills because parents have been doing everything for them their whole lives. And, uh, and they, you know, they don't know how to make choices. They don't know how to advocate for themselves. They don't know how to take care of themselves. They don't know how to, what I talk about in the book, as you know, is they don't know how to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And that's, you know, to circle back to where we started this conversation, that's really what I would say to parents. Yeah, you want your kid to get a good job and have a good career, and that's totally understandable. One of the most important things that's going to make that possible is for, the, for your kid to be able to figure out for themselves what's important to them, right? You can't just hand them a career. They have to find out what they're good at because they're not going to be, if they're not, they're not good at numbers, they're not going to be a good engineer. There's nothing you can do about it. But also, not just what they're good at, but what they care about because that's what motivates you and that's what's going to make you good at your job, right? That's really, and, and you can't, again, there are no shortcuts. You can't tell your kid what to care about. You have to, Make room for that long process of discovery that happens in adolescence and young adulthood, where you figure out what you care about. Right. And this, I mean, and, and that's really, you know, paradoxical a little bit to some of these parents. I'm sure that are good looking at this process in a way that's sort of highly managed and highly crafted and highly packaged and trying to plan ahead based on these kinds of things that include a lot of shortcuts, which is what the the, the U.S. news ranking exists for, right. is to provide a right. shortcut. Um, and, right. and, and, it, and it really seems to just to kind of, uh, you know, create some cognitive dissonance for some parents. And that's, I think the blank stare I get looking back at me across the college fair table when I say, stop it, you know, <laughs> don't plan for this yeah. stuff, you know, just yeah. let them live. You know, I can give you some details about what goes on in the program, but you know, I'm not going to be able to tell you, you know, why this is good for your son or daughter. Right, right, right. And, and I, listen, I know that parents, have the hardest job here. I sympathize sure. with with their concern for their kids, but um, you can't do everything for them. I mean, I mean, and if you do succeed in doing everything for them, that's the worst possible thing. And that's what we're talking about. And that's what I believe Scott Haynes wrote "How to Raise an Adult" is talking about. And I don't know if it would help, but I often feel like parents who talk this way, parents in general seem to have forgotten what it was like to be young. Mm. And I think that if you, 
invite parents to introspect about what they were like when they were young. They might realize, you know, I made mistakes, I took risks, I defied my parents, and somehow I managed to be a successful adult anyway, or actually because I did those things. I am still waiting for the college essay from the student who attempted to buy beer with a fake ID, you know, uh, at the corner store, and it just hasn't shown up yet. Um, you know I mean this is harkens back to my own high school career and I think to myself like you know I I can I could I'm not that far removed from it you know and I can peek through the veil a little bit into you know these kids lives and I look at their college resumes and I'm thinking to myself this is just so not your life there's so much other stuff here there's so much other fun dangerous you know fucked up stuff in here that would be so much more engaging to learn about but they're just gripped with this fear that it's just gonna sink them and if it sinks them it's gonna sink their whole life and and that's why you know this courage associated with taking these risks is is like that's like the hottest commodity to me and um and it and it's really hard to Mm -hmm. um I don't know. It's hard to, I mean, I've got a daughter who's two. And so I, I hope that I can do whatever I can do to, to, to encourage that in her short of, of saying, Hey, go try and buy some beer with a fake ID. But you know what I mean? Um, so it's, no, I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. And, and you also touched on another great point, which is, you know, this crazy kind of now or never all or nothing. Whereas it's not the end of the world. You know, there's that, there's that other new book uh, by Frank Bruni called "Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be." Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, and it's and as uh, as you know, it's it's basically just a lot of stories making that very important point. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, it's not the end of the world. I really hope that it that it that it sinks in, and I hope that that your book sinks in too. Um, I see that you've been busy. You've been out on the road. You've been talking about it a lot. Obviously, this has really tapped into uh, a very very real panic uh that people are feeling and and i you know the the whole point for me in starting this little project is to try to just reduce the panic as much as possible to say that by and large it's all going to be okay you know it's going to work out fine for you you're going to be great you know that that people are really looking at this process almost like it's a uh like it's a horizontal hourglass right that it's like if i can just get through that one pinch point I'll mm-hmm, be okay. Mm-hmm. You called it the keyhole, you know, the same right. thing. And it's like, look, and, and that's all they're thinking about, right? Is that, is that little pinch point instead of thinking about what to do once they get to the other side, you know, you mentioned Frank's Frank Bruni's right. book and he talks about, I think it was the Dean at Claremont saying, you know, what's that line at the end of the candidate? What do we do now? Right. And, and that's, right, and that's right. what I'm really worried about. Uh, students these days are at least trying my best to try and say, well, think about, think about the other side of all this, you know, don't worry about that stuff. That'll work itself out. But man, once you get there, this is just going to be phenomenal for you and you'll see, you know, it's impossible to, to, to implant that idea in their brain right now, but, but, but they'll get there. Um, and, uh, and I, I hope that perhaps collectively we can chip a little bit away at that. Um, so yeah. yeah well it's it's uh we're coming up on time here bill and i don't want to take any more of it than you got so I, I i really really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me uh it's been a great conversation i learned a lot well um i hope i hope it was helpful um and and i agree i mean i think it's going to take a lot of people chipping away i think people are doing it I'm i'm not as you know i'm not quick to say that i'm hopeful but i it seems to be that there are more and more people uh, writing books, writing articles, 
or in some other way pushing back against this because I think people are real, realizing it's it's ridiculous, it's unsustainable, and it's ultimately pointless. So yeah, so good for you for doing this. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks okay. a lot. I, I really appreciate it, Bill. Please, uh, sure. m- my regards to uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, okay. I I'm not sure when the next time is I'll be there, but um, it's a good town. How'd you end up there? Uh, you know, we just have we have friends here, and that's how we discovered it. Yeah, and then uh, we, you know, we just decided to move here because it's such a great place. Well, I've got some friends that are public school educators. Would you be would 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 you be willing to maybe uh, dip into their classes and talk to some kids? You yeah, uh, put them in touch with me. Yeah, it's good world. And and if I have, and if I have time, I I I certainly consider it. I know you're a yeah. busy guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks. No, thanks seriously, again. Seriously, put them in touch with me. I will do. Okay. All right, Bill. Thanks again. Okay. Be well. All right. Okay. You too. Bye bye. Bye-bye. So there it is then, interview number one. Lots of good stuff in there. I think you can hear a lot of frustration and anger, even at some points in his voice, which I think if you've been paying attention to this stuff at all, you should probably be some version of angry. Um, You know, I barely touched the surface of all of the issues that Bill discusses in his book, so buy it and read it. But one of the bits in there are some recommendations for how to change the admissions process to improve many of the issues that Bill talks about. So he lists seven things that people like me could pay attention to. Number one, affirmative action should be based on class instead of race. Number two, preferences for legacies and athletes ought to be discarded. Number three, SAT scores should be weighted to account for socioeconomic factors. Number four, we should put an end to resume stuffing by imposing a limit on the number of extracurriculars that kids can list on their applications. Number five, we should place more value on service jobs that lower income kids take in high school, which high achievers almost never do. Number six, we should refuse to be impressed by any experience or opportunity that was enabled by parental wealth. And number seven, we should finally stop cooperating with the U.S. News and World Report. So we've got our work cut out for us now, given how hard I think it would be to universally adopt these things across higher education in general. I think it's no wonder he's a little pessimistic about the future if this is what he thinks it should uh, it should hold for all of us. But hey, we are trying. I know for a fact. I mean, we're trying every day to do the right thing. And certainly in the spirit that he lays out, if not the actual letter of the things that he that he suggests. Anyways, um, that was a great talk. And I know he's been talking until he's blue in the face about this stuff. But the passion in his voice was evident, right? Because he really cares about these issues. So what would you have asked him? Uh, what'd you think? How'd I do? Whatever you want to say, please email me at crushpod at gmail.com or tweet me at crushpod. But better still, please call 50386-CRUSH and leave a message. And if it's insightful or funny or whatever, I'll include it in future podcasts. That'll be, that'll be fun. So you can check out some other stuff that I've got at uh, crushpodcast.com little introduction, a little bit of who I am and why I'm doing this, some reading material, a picture of Bill, print it out, hang it on your fridge, right? Um, Okay, I should shut up. Thanks for being here, everybody. Talk to you next time.